You are listening to the Root Simple Podcast. On this 130th episode of the Root Simple Podcast, I talk to artist Jessica Rath about nature, land, and pollinators. But first, I'd like to thank all of our listeners, but especially our Patreon supporters at the $10 a month and above level. So thank you to David, Sandy, and Robert. If you'd like to become a Patreon supporter, you can find a link on our blog at rootsimple.com. Reading from her bio, Jessica has examined how human containment of the land affects non-human species, from the propagation of agricultural plants to the sensoria of bees. She is on the faculty of the Art Center College of Design. Previous works include a project about apple breeding, co-evolutionary communication between flowering plants and their pollinators, and a long-term project called Farm Unfixed that we spend most of this conversation discussing. And now my interview with Jessica Rath, recorded on May 10th, 2019. Jessica, good to see you. It's been 10 years. I know. <laughs> so you emailed me. We had a little bit of a discussion about Missouri, actually. And uh, we know each other. I'm trying to remember how we, how do we know each other? Maybe from the time bank, the Ecopec time bank, I think. And then from Nancy Klim, who's a mutual friend. Nancy Klim has been on this podcast. And I think also the YMCA, too. Oh, yeah. You had curated a show. There was a temporary space in the downtown Y, and I put in um, several silver leaf um, works that were about wood and wood grain. Right. And so, but we're going to talk mainly about, well, I guess it's your family's land, right? And a project that you're working on on your family's land. Um, Let's set the stage for that. Tell me about this where it is and uh, your history and your family's history with this particular piece of land. Yeah, I'm, it is 146 acres in the Missouri Ozarks. It's near the Missouri-Arkansas border. It's land I grew up on. Um, and it's um, about, oh, five miles from town, as we say, from a town that it, when I was growing up was about 2,000 people, and I think now it's about 6,000 people. It's the county seat for Howe County, Missouri. Uh, the land was once my grandfather's, and then he, he passed it on to my mother, and um, my mother and my stepfather moved on to it in the 70s um, after they had both gotten their MFAs from WashU in fine art and and art therapy, and they um, they moved down there and started a transitional living program for severely mentally ill, and they also then started to work this land and get used to it and know it, and um, tried to set up based on on back to the lander movement information and books, tried to set up a, a relatively self-sustaining kind of environment on the farm. So we used um, local um, logs, uh, oak logs that were milled actually near where my relatives from Germany originally um, came to the town of Thomasville, um, the lumber mill there. So trees that actually probably my great-great-grandparents grew up around were used to make um, a very large log cabin. And we set up a gray water system and a uh, 250-foot well and a windmill to pump the well and a self-composting toilet and a lot in that house, uh, a really wonderful house. And so that's where I go to now is that house and that land. My parents, my mother's deceased and my, my stepfather has moved away. And I just 
there was cattle on the land for the last 70 years, and the herd has um, was sold, and we leased the land for a little bit to another herd, and that herd has now been removed. And we were about to sell the land about a year and a half ago, and I realized that my my art practice has been about other species, both plant and animal. And the moment at which I had needed to make a decision about whether I wanted to keep the land, it became an ethical decision in which um, I had a responsibility to the species that were there to be the steward that would care for that land and that that would be my last art project, that I'm 50 and that I have a responsibility to do work there. Can you tell me a little more about your childhood, what it was like being the the child of Back to the Landers? I mean, before I started recording, you were telling me about uh, a nice anecdote about the composting toilet. Yeah, I... um I uh, boarded horses for two years in order to save money enough to um, buy a used, very fancy Swedish composting toilet that was built into the house. Like part of the part of the actual architectural plans of the house had the self composting toilet in, in it. So it's a composting toilet that's actually inside the house, not a separate building. Um, and you know, um, my stepfather used to say that we all peed too much. Um, so that the composting toilet had had too many people and too much urine to actually function. Um, I'm still not sure about those toilets. And uh, it also had a, a it had a kind of a fan um, pipe that came out of it. And depending on the day and the wind, um, like the the smells would either get wafted away from the house or be blown straight back into the house and fill the entire open plan, you know, studio like uh, three thousand square foot house, which was pretty pretty awful but something that we also got used to and also the windmill sometimes worked and sometimes it didn't and so when it didn't you'd have to go and hand pump a, a 250 foot well which is you know a lot of labor <laughs> but I was a teenager at that time and I like desperately wanted my shower <laughs> and I would go out there and pump for a long time as soon as I came home from school to get immaculately clean I was definitely the more conservative daughter compared to my parents. Who were presumably reading the Whole Earth Catalog and that kind of whole ethos. Yeah, um, it's Foxfire, right? Oh, we have Foxfire, right. Right, the whole series, yeah. They were reading that, and then we also, um, there's a, quite a few communes in that area, and we would go, we would get try to get as much of our food from a co-op and so there were co-op meetings once a month and so you met the rest of the community who were spread out throughout several counties um there and those people became you know they were also the sort of leftist guard in that community so to be able to save your political philosophical and sort of emotional self you needed that group of people. Um, and so a lot of the information was shared between them too. Books were shared, ideas were shared, and models were shared. Uh, and in co-op meetings, kids got to play with each other. So one of my main supports in Southern Missouri was a, is a young woman, uh, was a young woman um, named Noelle Hankey, who grew up um, within that community. Uh, and we met when we were two and three. Um, and her father, David Hankey, is um, a lead environmentalist in the country, actually. Um, uh, he's an activist, and he's uh, the steward of the uh, Alford Forest nearby. So I still have a very large network of environmentalists and back-to-the-landers who advise me um, on this project. And so um, 
you moved away, obviously, and you've had quite an art career uh, here in, in Los Angeles, right? And um, and as you said, the, the, the decision came to, um, you had to make a decision on the land uh, itself. Maybe you could describe this unique piece of property, and maybe, perhaps we should also actually describe, you said a little bit something about it, but set the scene for what the terrain is like around it. Um, and we were talking about how southern and northern Missouri are different, that kind of. So let's set the scene for this this piece of land uh, that that you now are are in charge of. Yeah, I think people think of Missouri as a split state in terms of uh, civil war, but there's a lot of that. There's also just a lot of poverty um, and has been uh, in Missouri which meant that during the Civil War, there was a, both sides were using Missouri territory as a, as a place to wage war and um, to take resources from the state. And that's a very interesting and long history. There's also a kind of split between the state along the Missouri River, which is that um, in the northern part of the state, the land is flatter, and you can actually grow crop there, grain there. Um, and the soil is very different. And then below the river... Um, is more uh, uh, plateau. Um, it's called the Ozarks. There are small mountain ranges. They're very, they're very short mountains, but they have a very different soil type, and there aren't vistas like there are in plain states or the northern part where we have rolling hills, as you had described, that your family was um, partly from that area of rolling hills. So there's also this idea that um, that when you come from a place where you can see a, a vista, you can kind of ser- clearly lay out a plan and you're a different kind of personality and that we in the southern part of the state from these hills are hill people. We have a bit of a paranoia. We don't know what's coming around the corner because you can't see around the corner. <laughs> we also have clay soil. So we have to be a little, we're a little hard scrabbled because we can't plan out fields. We have to make make that land work, um, even though it's not, it's not easy to till. Um, so most often in the Southern part of the state, the way that most of us have made money is with domesticated animals, with pigs or goats. Um, and now, um, because of the market failure with the pigs in the seventies, it was, it's predominantly been cattle. And so what does the the land look like itself? It's got some unique properties, so it's a little different than some of the other adjoining parcels next to it, right? Yeah, it's um, my parents left sections of the land, especially along fence rows, um, much to my major, my, my neighbor's <laughs> dismay. They left um, trees to grow and bushes to grow. So there would be growth, you know, overgrown areas um, for biodiversity, for wildlife, what we called then bi- wildlife, um, to have habitat. But the majority of it are pastures. And around me are pastures that have very clean friends rows. That's kind of something that you – it's like a lawn. Like your pastures should be kept clean. Um, and as my neighbor Lehman, who's in his 90s, um, who's lived right across the road from this property all of his life or pretty much, said like you can't – you have to keep the property eat down, which means you need to keep um, either a bush hog in there to cut it down or you have to keep cattle in there because there are weedy plants – and that's an interesting story because a lot of the weedy plants or the weedy trees, the trees that we consider bad, quote unquote, um, in the Ozarks, are are plants that the Missouri Department of Conservation planted in different decades um, to create habitat for wildlife um, that became really problematic and didn't necessarily create wildlife habitat. So it gets really complicated really fast in terms of 
the Ozark people's relationship with the government and what they think of should be done with wildlife. So most people keep their fields very eat down because the invasive species that the MDC introduced take over fields and neither do they make room for wildlife nor do they provide good pasture land for the cattle. Um, so we have lots of fields that have no trees, no bushes, and um, at this point, no flowering plants. And so, um, well, you're you're calling the project unfixed. So probably should I should probably ask you why that particular title? But I do want to get back to the the mix of plants yeah. too. But um, so the the title is unfixed. How did that that come about, and and what what what's the meaning of that of that title? I chose unfixed because I talk a lot when I teach. I teach at Art Center College of Design in Fine Art and. I teach in the humanities and sciences department, and there's a lot of um, need in the art world and with humans in general to fix identities and to stabilize those identities and then to base how we're going to judge each other on our behavior on how that identity should perform. Um, And I have found, especially I think since my divorce and since raising my daughter, um, a real freedom in unfixing myself from sexual identities uh, and political identities and finding that the more I unfixed myself, the more I was able to become who I really am. And so those conversations about gender identity and sexual identity became a kind of um, way of thinking, I would say, especially in the last six years for me, that really helped broaden everything about who I am and how I approach my work. And when I came to the land, I realized that a lot of the language around the land is very fixed. It's fixed by environmentalists. (laughs) It's fixed by the MDC. They have their own language. It's fixed by my neighbors who want to think of certain plants as bad and certain plants as good. Um, It's fixed by people who think that that wildlife, wildlife still exists in a kind of pristine state, which we know doesn't exist. And... I began to think that what I needed to do was to unfix some of the language of these different groups around the land and then unfix the land itself about how it was determined to be graze land for cattle. And that I didn't, it also was an invitation to myself to not know exactly what it was to quote unquote restore this land, that I needed to keep that really open and keep gleaning information from different sources before I make a plan and to also have a flexible model so that I can be responsive. So it's a constant reminder to me to keep unfixed and to respect the unfixing that the land is constantly doing as it's changing and adapting. So what does an unfixed landscape look like, I guess? That's a, so I know what you mean. It's sort of like there's this kind of, need to control things right and to and this question always comes up about nate like what is native what period of native plants native plants when the native americans were here native plants from the 19th century Uh, do we do we kill everything off that's there um practically speaking what does what does this unfixed ethos look like when you're making decisions about like maintenance of the land or what things you remove, what you don't remove? Is it you just let go entirely? Um, what 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 level of uh, kind of like intervention do you do in the landscape? 
I think um, first you assess for a while. I think part of unfixing is time that you really have to give yourself time. I think control and the need for control usually mandates that you make steps and goals, quote unquote goals, not moving towards something, but a fixed goal. And so part of that is kind of releasing that. So instead of looking at the land and imagining what you think is going to happen, you sort of roll back from that and then say, how can I make room to assist the land in becoming what it could possibly become? Um, because it has been fixed as Gray's land. I think the main, um, the main fixing of this is that fescue was planted. I'm not sure about the dates of this, but from what I understand, it's planted around the 50s and 60s predominantly throughout, at least in my area, um, throughout the Ozarks, to um, as a cool season grass. So it has two. It comes alive in the spring, dies back in the hot summer, and then comes around in the fall. It makes very efficient use of the seasons for cattle in terms of cattle. And you can hay it, so you can make bales from it. But it also blankets the ground so that other species can't grow. And it's and it really does do that very, very well. Um, so I think what, what I do want to do is I want to unfix the land enough and then see what native seeds um, can come up. Um, I also am doing prescribed burns now, but I'm also really careful about that. So we out of 146 acres, we just did one acre right now just to see what it's like to do that for myself, how many people I need. Is the Howell County Volunteer Fire Department really ready for me to do this? Different counties are different in terms of whether or not those people are available. Will you know the MDC talk to me about cost share programs for um, Native um, native seed. So it's a lot of different parts coming into play, trying to balance those and then allowing the land to reveal itself to me while I'm starting to get rid of things like, is that tree really bad or can it provide some um, habitat? Do I, you know, part of the reason some of these things are considered bad is because if there's a, a um, black locust in your field, and it lays down thorns, then you can't drive a truck through that field. And as a biologist said, well, why would you want to drive a truck through that field ever again? Because as soon as you start driving trucks through, you're squashing, for instance, insect um, nests left and right, and birds, of course, too. Do I ever need to drive a vehicle through that land ever again? No, probably not. That should be, and that's what I'm learning is, no, I, I don't want to drive vehicles through here. Do I ever want to use a, a not a synthetic compound on this property. No, that's now a mission. I considered it. I'm getting pushed from even the environmentalists are saying, you need to use some herbicide and I will not. So there are kind of some fixing of boundaries of what comes in. And then how can I unfix enough so that things can be generated? And then how can I assist with native plants that um, could layer up in there and provide habitat for pollinators, for instance, because they're, that's the change of the fescue fields is for pollination um, to begin a corridor um, because there are no literally no flowering plants left um, that I can see in most of the pastures all around me, which means that there are no insects left. The diversity of insects is decimated by that. That agriculture even around there 
is feeling that, but it will feel it acutely as we lose even more insects. So, and then the riparian habitat is water habitat, and it's a special um, in that land because there's a spring on the land and there's 14 ponds, and that's unusual in that area. You can have one pond maybe, but it's overused by the cattle. And in mine, there's um, been 20 herd of cattle and not a lot of use of the ponds. So, and some of the ponds are ephemeral. They're seasonal, essentially. They come and go. And I'm also learning to recognize that those are important. I thought of those as failed ponds that didn't hold water, quote unquote. Um, and now I think of them as these incredible habitats um, that come and go, um, that have their own diversity of species in them. And so I'm trying to encourage um, those to go on their own. Those might be just a secession study in which I let them go, but I'd be planting pollinator. There are certain kinds of pollinator plants that do very well in marshland. And I have a lot of marshland to, um, to work with. And that's unusual in Southern Missouri to have that kind of marshland. So maybe this is too fixed a question, but um, is species biodiversity kind of your, your highest goal here? Or you mean, because that's, of course, the like, the native plant people are the ones pushing you maybe to just clear everything out and then plant, you know, native plants with the idea that they're the most um, beneficial in it to, to species is, or is, or is your thinking different than that? I think what I've learned from Nancy <laughs> and from others, is there are certain plants that have come in, um, especially, you know, this land is disturbed land. It's been disturbed by cattle and by humans around the edges and by the tractors and the trucks that have driven through it um, and the tilling that was done for planting seed occasionally when seed was planted. There's been a lot of disturbance and there have been a lot of plants that have come in that were not introduced by humans, but just, you know, directly on that land, but that have come in and made a space there. And I recognize as I get to know them that certain certain plants um, that are considered exotic, if I talk to the biologist, they're called exotics. Um, come in and they do good soil remediation. They're doing good work. So I need to get to know those plants and kind of get a balance. Really, the thing I need to set back is the fescue because the fescue was given too much um, property. <laughs> um, but other species that are non-native, no, I'm not. I don't feel the need to go in and use that much herbicide. The herbicide also, you know, there's a lot of different studies about Roundup and Remedy and I can't speak to those. I, I, I have had Hodgkin's lymphoma more than likely because of accumulated chemical exposure using sculpture materials over the years and enclosed environments and being, you know, a sculpture assistant for bronze foundries and uh, places that used uh, resins. So I know I don't I really don't have the if I want to last 30 years, I don't have a lot of room for chemicals. I really don't. Um, and I think my last big, big project, um, I worked with resins to create this bumblebee nest. And I realized, I think at that moment that that was a key moment, um, which I love that work very much, but I can never go back. And I haven't really made sculpture since then. It kind of stopped me. And in which I felt that I couldn't, I really couldn't justify the use of those materials anymore. Um, but my visions are still in plastics and things because we grew up with plastics and a kind of translucency and malleability and lightweight form that is incredible that plastics provides. Um, and so my my fantasy world is filled with those kind of objects. But to create them as sculpture is 
is detrimental to myself and it goes against everything in terms of my ethics and relationship to the environment. I can't continue to talk about the environment in the way that I do using those materials. So sculpture in a way is over unless I can find other ways of building, which is working on that land or building, as I mentioned, solitary bee hotels for, for Disconso right now. Well, what, what part of the art toolbox do you still see in, in this project? Is that, is your art background going to inform this work or are you kind of moving somewhere else? I think of the project as an art project. Um, we talked a little bit about this earlier that, um, what artists bring to the table, uh, oftentimes is that we can generate ideas from multiple theoretical, academic, practical, historical threads and keep track of them and make sense of them and then create a new model. And that we are fearless in the way that we can rip off from multiple sources and then generate things that seem almost impossible, but present different lenses into looking at the world. We can break apart language. We can bust apart political structures. We can mine those things for what we need um, in order to have some kind of critical analysis of, um, of assumptions that we have. So I, I feel like that's our job um, and that I've, I've worked very hard collaborating with technicians, with land people, with biologists to create my artwork and that that then, and composers, um, then that then feeds into everything that I can do on that land. Um, that land has a strategic plan to remediate that fescue and create the pollinator project, which I know deeply because of my work with bees and native bees for the last art project. It has uh, the riparian habitat restoration, um, which is also part of a sort of philosophical unraveling of ways of seeing like the failed pond, really understanding the importance of these ephemeral ponds and being able to communicate with the Ozark natural history biologist, Susan Farrington, about that and getting her trust, which I don't know that a farmer in the same way would get that trust. Um, I get trust with people from very different disciplines, not because I identify as one of them, but because I can move that way. And that's something that's very particular to artists. They can move simultaneously in many different areas. And then I have an educational component to connect the work to the high school and the local college. How do I do that and be respectful and that of their um, experience of that land and bring their experience um, as stakeholders into that? And that's part of learning from social justice, which I learned from artists like Carolina Caicedo and from Nancy Klim when they do work um, on land with people. That goes into how I then formulate what education, quote unquote, and work looks like. Um, so also then understanding the economics of that area. And if I want people to participate in that community or that um, environment, then I need to respect the economy there, which is a very, very um, poor area, one of the poorest counties in the country at different times. If different censuses, you um, find that it's one of the poorest counties in the in the country. Um, so how can I generate funds to then, because I'm a grant writer, because that's what artists become as well, to then create jobs that are hand jobs that are not about necessarily machines, but um, what kind of jobs can I create there for people um, so that maybe I can displace a few McDonald's jobs and Walmart jobs, which are pretty much all that's offered now. 
and make that on the land. All, all of that comes from art experience, um, from other artists who have set up models for that. And I've seen and gleaned from that I can pull together there. Uh, you mentioned a few people you've talked to, and I know you've had a, a diverse assortment of conversations with people about this land. Um, who, who are the, who, who are some of the people you've talked to and who, who are some of the people you'd like to talk to in the future? I get picked up by David Hankey, who's uh, an, an environmentalist and writes extensively about uh, the Ozarks and is put a, part of the Ozarks Land Trust um, and part of the Back to the Lander movement. And he drives me from the airport back to my house, the two-hour drive, and he teaches me about the landscape on the way there and on the way back. So I learn a lot from him, and those conversations are slow. I've known him since I was two. And I think he's been training me to be an environmentalist for a very long time. I'm 50. Um, so I'm learning slowly from him. He's very careful in how much he gives me, not to overwhelm me, I think. And he's the steward of the Alford Forest. And that's a job that, uh, as a steward of a forest, that um, was disrespected within my own family. They thought that he was lazy, that caring for a forest was a lazy job. Uh, there's a lot of judgment about Back to the Landers and about environmentalists in terms of what are they doing? They're not working. Um, and so I'm also learning about, about that. And I'm connecting to the Ozark Regional Ozark Resource Center, which was once a commune, New Life Farms, that then became this other um, nonprofit that um, provides physical sponsorship to different projects. So I have just met with them. They have quarterly meetings, and they are going to sponsor the um, the first iteration, well, they're going to be the fiscal sponsor for the first iteration of the plan. So I'm beginning to get to know them. Part of the plan is also to bring in artists that have land projects around the world to have visits um, four times a year. And so I've asked a funder if, if they would provide that. And so I'm trying to connect LA funders and national funders to the Ozarks Resource Center, which is a small nonprofit. If I can bring in money to them, they take a percentage, which keeps them alive um, and funding other projects in the area, and then also allows me to have that kind of sponsorship there. I have also connections. Some of my first connections were with the Missouri Department of Conservation, which is really in bed with Remedy and Rescue with Monsanto, which a lot of, I think probably a lot of these conservation departments are in terms of trying to remediate using chemicals. And at the same time, your, some of your best young people are being trained in the wildlife um, and natural resources departments of agriculture within, um, for instance, in the Midwest universities. And one of the best jobs that they can get is through these conservation departments. So it's really, it's a crapshoot. You know, you, you've really got some wonderful young people and um, older people, middle-aged people in the conservation departments that have the best of intentions. But the conservation departments have these mandates. So getting to know these people individually and then having slow relationships. So, for instance, with the MDC, they said they could not do cost share with me in terms of helping me with the seed, um, the native seed plantings, which will be $500 an acre. If you think of that for 100 acres. What is that? Oh, boy, $5,000? $500,000. $500,000 to do the plantings. I need a grant and I need cost share, but the MDC required that I remediate using um, chemical methods until I just kept on emailing and saying, so what are you doing, Richard? (laughs) 
How about we try a prescribed burn? Yeah, I think I can set up a plan for a prescribed burn. And so now there's a plan in place and we're just ignoring the fact that I'm not going to be doing any chemicals. Um, so I think also encouraging these relationships as experiments too. Can we try another model, Richard? And Regan, Regan is part of soil and water, which is the ag section of MDC. There's the wildlife section, which is Richard Temple. And then Susan Farrington is the biologist. They all have very different language based on their ag or wildlife or biologist lenses onto the land. Um, so kind of taking all of that into consideration as well. And then there are land trusts in the region. I have found that some of the land trusts have prescriptive ideas about what a sort of protecting the land from humans. And I think that based on some of my most recent readings, tending the wild and listening to um, braiding sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer, really listening to um indigenous history and indigenous voices about tending land that I'm not ready to think of that land as something I should have my hands off, but that's something that um, I need to be reciprocal with the land and have my land, my hands on the land in order to be respectful and to share with it and to know it and therefore assist, which I think has already, I know in that area, the Osage definitely did prescribe burns and there's a long history of it. And even the people I learned from my 90-year-old neighbor, who is also sort of part of this trio of whatever, this incredible web of people, that prescribed burns were happening on my land up until 1951. Um, but nobody does them anymore there. But that was typical. Before rescue and remedy and any of the chemicals, the way that you got rid of um, some of these uh, noxious weeds, as we would refer to them, or some of the trees that you needed to clear in a field, before there were bush hogs. There, there was burns. There were burns, and they were normal. Um, so it isn't. It's, it's part of quite a few different histories in that land. So, my neighbors are also part of that web. I have um, mostly uh, very conservative, in terms of their political views. I would say Trump supporting neighbors, and uh, also very religious neighbors, and they completely surround me. And I've known them since I was very young. And they have a lot of land knowledge. And we don't talk politics. We also don't talk religion very much. But we do talk about the land quite a bit. And we share a lot of food. And we know where the mushrooms are to pick. And I completely depend upon them. One of them, for instance, D. Lewis, went to the prescribed burn workshop for me without even telling me. And she texted me and said, I went to this burn workshop. We're going to continue to use rescue and our remedy and <laughs> remedy and uh, uh, roundup. Right. Roundup. <laughs> I don't even want to say the word, but um, we know you want to try the burn. So we're going to send you all the information and then maybe you can fake that you went to the workshop so you can get Richard to come over here and do a prescribed burn because we want to see what happens. So there's a lot of that, too. I need those. I need my neighbors very much so. Has there been any pushback? I mean, um, the the the, the um, nation is very divided right now. But it sounds like just by talking about uh, what you're doing, um, have people been generally receptive to it in the area? Well, that's the difference between the north and the south of Missouri. Um, that's why back to the landers went to Missouri. You don't talk about what other people are doing on their land. You might complain a little bit when you notice that the field is gone to seed, quote unquote, or um, needs to be eat down. So my neighbor Lehman might say, 
I, you got to get some cattle in there. And then I'll come back to Lehman and say, you just want me to put your cattle in there for free, don't you? And he was like, well, you know, I could do a lot with 20 head of cattle in a couple of days in that field and to get all eat down, then you wouldn't have to pay for the bush hog. So a lot of this also is about joking and bartering and trading equipment. So there's not a lot of room for pushback. It's also, you know, there's a, it's on the edge of Arkansas and there's about a, a bit of s- Southern gentility that goes along with paranoid Ozark <laughs> that makes you respectful of other people's positions. We don't want anybody across, across our land. There's a gate and you have to ask permission. So th- that private land idea um, is not something that I really want to adhere to. And at the same time, it does provide me with a freedom to do what I want with on that land without a lot of judgment from other people. Everybody's kind of curious, but I'm not walking onto their land and telling them what to do. And I'm in the county, I'm not in the city, so I can literally build whatever I want to without having to get a permit. And that's pretty rare. If you're from California, you know that that's incredibly rare. So there's a lot of independence there that makes the political position something that's private also, if that makes sense. I want to ask you about something you said to me in an email. You said, um, how did you put it? I'll put this, friends and family who have tried to stop me with a very subtle sexism. Right, misogyny. Yeah. You know, the misogyny is 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 so ingrained everywhere all over the country. It's not, you know, I get I get mansplained all the time. The worst are uh white you know, neoliberal straight men who do it unconsciously all the time. Um, to me here in LA, I, I used to say when I was dating heavily, I was like, I'm not dating anybody west of the 405. <laughs> so, I get <laughs> I also get it in West Plains, and I get it from my my stepdad. And I think people here would kind of imagine what that looks like. But thanks to Southern gentility, you can't imagine what it looks like. It's very subtle. So you know, for instance, uh, my I, there's a track, a perfectly viable tractor, and a and a and a perfect bush hog for the land, which is a ten footer. There's six foot, which would take me forever to bush hog the land because occasionally I will need to cut back fescue to remediate it to cut it when it's young when its seed head is young but not mature so that i can lay that nitrogen into the soil but not lay the seed so i need to be able to bush hog but my stepfather says you know people get hurt on that all the time Mm. by the way when i was 18 and i brought home um a boyfriend from college um my stepfather immediately taught him how to use the bush hog and the tractor and he stayed the whole summer doing that for a living and I buck bales for a living um, when I was young, and I built buildings. I work with carpenters. So my parents are both, you know, back to the landers and very liberal. And at the same time, my stepfather had certain limits or controls he wanted. So I'm 50 now, and he, I need a bush hog and a tractor. And he's like, I need to sell that bush hog and tractor. I'm like, well, I'll, I'll buy it from you. No, I'm not going to do that. Why? Well, you might hurt yourself. Hmm. You could teach me how to use it. Nah. Not going to do that. And then finally he said, after I'm learning to deal with misogyny with some silence. So I was silent for a while. And he's like, well, I guess you'd, you'd call me sexist. And I literally end the conversation there, let them say their own descriptors. I don't defend or anything. And then I go talk to Tim down the road who's in his 70s who's going to bush hog at once for me. I'm like, how about I give you $9,000? You go buy that tractor and you're the bush hog and then I'll buy it back from you. And then you find out that the other part of the Ozarks is wily people. And he's like, well, I'll do it if you pay me 250 
So that's how we do a work around for some of the misogyny. When I needed to move the cattle off the land in December, there was a lot of handshakes um, in terms of leasing the land um, um, to some neighbors for, with some cattle. And then the last year I said to my stepfather, who co-owns the land with me, I said, we need to put that down on paper. And he's like, we never do that. That's disrespectful. I'm like, no, we're going to put it down on paper. And um, around about December, part of the uh, deal that you do with leasing land is that um, the people that lease the land for cattle are the responsible for fixing the fence. They used to own the West Plains Fence Company, and they refused to fix the fence because they just didn't want to make the investment. And I was ready for domestic animals to be off the land. And the way that they dealt with me was the youngest one, there's three generations of them that I'm dealing with in terms of this contract. Youngest one says, yeah, sure, I'll fix that fence and never does it and never really says no. The next up is in his 60s. Uh, He runs a quarry nearby and I go up and he's like, well, you go and sit with the wives over there while I deal over here. And so he made me wait and I said, I'm not sitting. I got a contract to deal with and I'll just wait right here. So he made me wait 45 minutes, and then um, and then he said, you know, I think I, I'm just going to call your stepdad about this. You, you want to break that contract. And then the oldest, who was Lehman across the way, who's been a really wonderful person, gave me a hug and groped me um, up and down um, when, I, when I was talking about getting rid of that lease. So that was all within – that was Christmas week, one, two, three of them. And that's constant. There's no um, female that owns land by herself that I know of. There's a lesbian couple that I know, but that's it. So given that the title is unfixed, how are you going to address this in the project? (laughs) One relationship at a time. I don't need to make enemies, um, but I think writing about the experience is also part of what I need to do in order to make um, a voice for women who want to do this kind of work in at least that part of the world. And um, I think talking to women as much as I can um, while I'm there, talking to young women, um, talking to my neighbors, uh, and letting them know my experience and inviting them over for dinner, which I have already started to do. And it's expected that women hang out together, right, in the kitchen. But I close down my farm now mostly to men. I let women come through and people who are non-binary, and I'm very careful about the men, the people that identify themselves as men who come onto the land. It's not assumed that if you have a boyfriend that they will be allowed on the land. I am very, very careful about that. And I'm not loud about it, but, um, but I'm screening and the gates are locked and the combinations are changed and there's eight gates. What about racism, actually? Because um, that's another issue uh, that you, I, I assume, is you know obviously something that that you might face in this area. Yeah, there is a lot of racism, and there's a lot of saying that people don't have experience with other ethnicities or cultural backgrounds because people of different races and ethnic uh, backgrounds have not lived there, and that's. Um, a lie. African Americans have had different communities within the Ozarks. There's a long history of um, 
black people in the southern Missouri Ozarks, but that history keeps on getting erased, and people get made to feel so uncomfortable that they leave. So that kind of erasure is is happening. It's lie. It's been happening for quite a little while, and it keeps on happening. And um, so I think it's important for me as a person to keep on saying that that history is there. And um, I think it's also important for me to bring people um, to the farm who can have a different experience of the Ozarks through the land. Um, but I also sometimes fear for people who I bring um, to the land. And so I also have to kind of wrap my head around that and whether that's a legitimate fear or not. I also know that there's, thanks to the hospital and to the college in town, uh, there are people from many different backgrounds from all over the world and from all over this country that live in my hometown now. So it isn't diverse, but it has become more diverse. And I think um, having conversations about that, maybe even using the farm as a place to have some of those conversations would be a good idea. I'm not sure how to do it yet, but I think bringing people, artists of color to the farm to have those conversations, if people would, um, if people would join me there, um, that I would like to make that space um, for those kind of conversations there. So this is obviously a really long-term project. How do you foresee it? You know, because you and I are the same age, we're not going to be here forever. How does this project go forward into the what I assume you would like to see as the distant future? Yeah, I, you know, I was looking when I, I first kind of out of desperation thinking like, well, I need to create kind of or put it in part of a land trust um, that has certain rules and regulations and then um, I realized like I'd be hoping that someone would do what I want with the land and I'm like well I don't even know what I would want for the land I have to get to know it first and then I realized that that's not what I want I want it to be a working model I went to the land institute in Salina Kansas um, last summer and looked at the the institute and was completely blown away um, by their work on perennial um, polyculture and the long project there um, and how that developed. And I'm starting later in the game, right, where I'm 50. But at the same time, I think I want to build models there, models for the pollinator um, corridor, possibly a model for working with Hamilton Seed Company, which is a native seed company in um, southern Missouri that provides the MDC with those thousands and thousands and thousands of pounds of seed. Can I essentially make crop for them in some section and have that be a model? How can you make land money, money off the land that has that has nothing to do with domesticated animals? And then maybe how can I invite the public to experience this very beautiful riparian um, habitat and have it not dist- be disturbed? So I think that building those things over time, I will get engagement, but then also building a strategic plan that includes it as a research center. So I'm also looking to go back and get a PhD to conduct some of this uh, as scientific research so that I can literally use it as a model that can be written about um, and that my PhD will lend that some kind of credence, uh, credibility. So, for instance, when I do the prescribe prescribe birds to do burns to do quadrant studies of what the species are at the time of the burn and then how they change over time, and to use that research, which would then hopefully get an institution to come in and use this as a research center in the end. So maybe in the end, 
it would be a combination of University of Missouri or WashU using it as a research center with some guidelines and then connecting it to the local high school and the local K through 12 and small colleges in terms of educational components, that it could be a kind of thoroughfare for local people who have deep knowledge to then connect to agriculture and wildlife and biodiversity through a combined lens on land that they already know, not on land that they think of as pristine and contained within the Mark Twain forest or pristine in the waterways that we've preserved, but on land that they grew up on that they can actually return to and have a different relationship with that is tending it and at the same time creating biodiversity. Wow. So I don't want to take up too much of your time, but you are doing something locally here in Los Angeles, which involves pollinators. And it was coming up in the fall, right? So um, because a lot of people listen to this are local, why don't you say something about that, what it is and and where uh, people can see it? Yeah. Um, I've done a lot of different projects over the years, and a lot of them have been about fruiting bodies, apples and tomatoes, and uh, the ways that um, bees pollinate fruiting bodies. And um, I'm working with curator um, Pamela Lewis-Bailey. This show, which is a, a survey of four exhibitions, at Descanso Gardens in the Stuart um, Haga Gallery. And then as part of that, which is what I do with the traveling of some of these exhibitions, is I'll be doing programming there. So one of the projects is to create solitary bee hotels for Descanso and also to work with artist Elkpin um, on doing some species posters in collaboration with some Pasadena area colleges. We're also using some of the scientific data about the hundred species of native bees that they found already at Descanso and making some work specific to that to help the public understand that diversity of bee species that already exist at Descanso. And then finally to work with Bob Hone, who is my um, bee cohort, uh, who keeps bees and is also the composer for A Better Nectar, which was a show about buzz pollination and bumblebees. We're bringing in the 40-person master chamber choir that we work with for the recording uh, for A Better Nectar for a live performance um, for one of the night gardens at Descanso. So a lot of programming from November to April of next year. We're really excited about that. We've already begun test bee hotels. That's what I was working on today. What kind of bees are there? What kind of hole size do they need? What kind of wood in the scrapyard at Descanso can we use to build these bee hotels to help the public understand about that diversity there? Well, I always think that I should be recording all the time because we had this great discussion before I started recording. And I think I I want the people listening to this to appreciate that when we were talking about this piece that you're about to do, you spent a lot of time talking about your incredibly intense knowledge of native bees that you've done. You've really studied this. And like, I think people, a lot of people are not familiar with the arts might think that you would start with the aesthetic part of it, but it seems like you were really focused on the, what the bees needed, not what our eyes as human beings need. And I wondered how you like kind of negotiate that balance. Yeah. um, Sometimes when I make work, it's for humans. And then what I want to do oftentimes is to either talk about make objects that help them understand why their desire plays into say the genetics of tomatoes, how that desire over the last hundred years have formed the way that we manipulate um, tomatoes and the Americans need for uniformity of color and uniformity of shape. That's very particular to Americans. Other countries did not 
um, do this to tomatoes. We did. <laughs> um, so I'm interested in that um, when I make art objects for humans in that way or blowing up a bumblebee nest to human scale and then having it a score that helps humans realize the sort of the resonant frequencies of bees and how they communicate in that way and how beautiful that foraging behavior is over the course of a day. And I also then, most recently, I think I'm leaning towards making works that work for other species, that are generative for other species, and then um, help humans see a different perspective at the same time. So for instance, at Descanso, we make these bee hotels, and we think about bee hotels that humans can like go out and buy a whole bunch of materials and then make this bee hotel. But the bees are already making their hotels within snags, within rotted logs and um, standing wood that is dead in which beetles have already made holes. So helping humans recognize what is already there, um, but that they want to clean up and control and tidy up and burn to leave things be. Um, so as part of the bee hotel, we'll have half of it be of wood that we've cut and sort of organized in a controlled way that people are used to seeing. And then the other half of the side of that bee hotel will be a snag that we found that has beetle holes already in it so that you can understand the relationship between the two, that it's literally there in front of your face. And that's another thing that artists can do is like, there's a reason why your aesthetics, why the controlling mechanism within your aesthetics wants to create this thing we like to build. It's incredible. And at the same time, we have to recognize what gets built already without us and that we need to make room for that. And so presenting an object that shows both so that we can, once again, sort of unfix our relationship to these objects and our need to build them. Well, I think that's a great place to conclude. If people want to see where uh, see your work and learn more about Unfixed, uh, where should they go? They can go to my website, um, jessicarath.com, and they can come to Descanso in November. I'll also be working with 18th Street um, for a project there um, in 2020. And that's about it. And I'm going to Kazakhstan in September as an extension of um, Take Me to the Apple Breeder, which is a project that I started at Cornell with um, apple breeder Susan Brown. And so I'll be going there um, with a group of Cornell scientists. And that part of that work will come back to Descanso and hopefully have some other homes here. Wow, that's great. Thank you so much, Jessica. Thank you so much, Eric. Thanks for coming over. That was Jessica Rath. You can find her website at jessicarath.com. Rath is spelled R-A-T-H. We'll have a link in the show notes for this episode. Sign up for a newsletter to hear about her upcoming show at the Descanso Gardens this fall. Thank you to all our listeners and to our Patreon supporters. The closing music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you.